Hi, I'm Elise Dayu, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Kay, a Class of 2022 New Arizona Fellow. Sarah is a writer, performer, and educator from New York City. She's the founder and co-director of Project Voice, an organization that uses poetry to entertain, educate, and empower students and educators in classrooms and communities worldwide. Sarah is the author of four books of poetry, B, No Matter the Wreckage, The Type, and All Our Wild Wonder. She's currently researching and writing about her Japanese-American grandmother's experience in South Dakota at the end of World War II. So Sarah, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. So to start us off, can you just tell me a little bit more about your fellowship project and what you're developing this year? Yes, I am working on a book about my Japanese-American grandmother's experience in South Dakota at the end of World War II, and also the experience of researching that time in her life and trying to put together information that I haven't had before. So I'm curious about why you're developing this book now and telling the story. How did you discover the story of your grandmother, June, and her time teaching um, at the school? But why now is the time to tell the story for you? Well, when I was growing up, I knew that my grandmother had spent time in South Dakota at the end of World War II, but that was almost all I knew. Nobody in my family had any photographs of her in South Dakota. There were no documents about this time in her life. Um, She's no longer alive for me to ask her questions. So I really didn't have a lot to go on. And um, the only reason that I knew that this even happened, or the only way that I could prove that this did happen at all, is above the dining room table in the house that I grew up in, in the apartment I grew up in, there is a shadow box, which is like a three-dimensional picture frame. And in the shadow box are two pairs of hand-sewn moccasins and a beaded belt for a wedding. And they were gifts that she was given when she left South Dakota. And they happened to have been the centerpiece of my parents' living room when I was growing up. And so these artifacts lived above my dining room table. And that was all I had to know that this chapter in my grandmother's life happened at all. And because I am who I am, I wrote a poem about this strange circumstance and also because I assumed I had all the information I would ever have and that it was mainly family myth and that was about it. And then I met someone from South Dakota and she asked whether I was interested in trying to find out more information and she was confident that it was possible. And I... (laughs) followed her lead and started on an adventure to try and find more information. And it's been now a few years of Nancy drewing my way across the state of South Dakota, learning more. And what started as a personal 
family story has expanded and given me new questions and new people to meet and learn from and speak to. And it has grown into what I hope is a compelling and peculiar story. As you said, the story melts together the wartime experiences of Japanese Americans, um, as well as the experience of Midwestern Indigenous tribes. And so why do you think it's valuable to explore this unique interaction between these two ethnic groups? I think that there is a way of studying U.S. history that implies that groups of people have siloed histories. When I was in school, if we studied it at all, we would maybe have Asian American History Month or Native American History Month or African American History Month, but there was never any acknowledgement that there are intersecting identities, there are individuals and communities who exist at these intersections that run into each other, rub up against each other, have friction or harmony. And there is so much to be learned from a framework that asks for who else was there? Who have we not heard from yet? What have we not learned or what stories haven't been told? And I personally am really curious about what might be possible when groups of people who have been silenced and ignored and siloed from each other have the opportunity to see each other, learn from each other, and maybe even find ways to build kinship or coalition together. And so I'm curious about the reporting process for you with regard to this book. It's your first book. You do have a very long career as a poet. And so what's been the takeaway for you so far um, as you embark on this project in terms of process that's both new or familiar to you? Yeah, I mean, this is my first large-scale nonfiction work. I think I am trying to find room in this work for memoir and research and metaphor and some of the tools that I am familiar with and also new skills that I'm learning. It is definitely a learning process and I am excited to be in community with journalists and researchers who I can hopefully (laughs) sharpen my skills with and learn from, um, while also not throwing out the window what I have learned in my work as a poet and a storyteller. So this is sometimes not the easiest question to answer, but when you think about impact and takeaway for your readers... For those who do read the book, what do you hope that they gain from this this story? And especially as it relates to how we remember World War II. I think that when I have looked for literature on World War II, the stories that I am most often met with are stories of battles and political decisions and strategies, and occasionally books about, quote unquote, the home front. But even in those stories, I 
almost never find stories about young women who were not at the center of that conflict, but were still experiencing the effects of war on their lives and also whose histories are as much a part of how we think about that time period as a military general. Um, And I'm excited to have these stories be understood as valuable, important, meaningful stories, and to have these women understood as historical figures and historical authorities as well. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit more about your career um, as a poet. And so I believe it was 2011, just a year after you graduated from college, you performed your poem, If I Should Have a Daughter, on the main TED stage. Um, I think it's one of one of the 50 most viewed videos of all time. And it's actually how I first came upon your work was through that video. A friend had sent it to me. How did you find your way to the TED stage at that age? And also what impact did that experience have on your life? Um, I imagine that it, it kind of just put you into a very different space in terms of being more well-known as a poet. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly think of my life in two stages <laughs> before TED and after TED. What is maybe hard to imagine today is that in 2011, there had not really yet been a viral TED Talk. They had only just started putting talks online and the concept that that could happen hadn't really gotten a lot of, or or I didn't know about it, <laughs> I should say. So as a result, when I got invited to go to TED, I knew it was a big deal, but I thought it was a big deal because the people in that room were going to be more humans than I was used to performing for and um, people who were excited and nerdy and it was a gig, but it was a, a gig sort of like other gigs I had done. It was still me sharing poems in a room full of people. I definitely did not understand what was going to happen um, and or even that such a thing was possible. And what did happen is that the video of that talk has reached an impossibly large number of people. And in addition to that video, therefore often being people's introduction to me and my work, sometimes it also was people's introduction to the art form of spoken word poetry. And I had many people reach out to say, I've never heard of this art form before. And now I saw this video of this talk you gave. And now I'm curious and excited about this art form. And as a result, I became a little bit of an accidental ambassador for the art form, which was not something I had intended or planned for or saw coming. And at first, that was something I really struggled with because I come from a lineage of poets who have made room for me and who had been in this world longer than I have, who, um, in my opinion, were uh, more deserving you know, ambassadors. And I felt very self-conscious about um, 
that being offered to me. And one of the ways that I have sort of tried to deal with that responsibility and that honor and that uh, privilege is to focus a lot of my work in the spheres of education. So I ran and continue to run an organization called Project Voice, and our work is focused on how we can bring poetry into education spaces through performances and workshops with young people of all ages and also professional development with educators so that educators can use poetry in their classrooms. And um, I've gotten an opportunity to take that work and share it with people all over the world um, so that they can do their own version of that in their own communities and in their own hometowns. And that is a big part of what my life has been, has been traveling and performing and teaching and sharing poetry and facilitating the creation of poetry in lots of different communities. And it is a, a great joy of my life and it is also hard work. And it is, I think, I, I say often that poetry holds a lot of different roles in my life. It is my hobby. It is my career. It is my craft. It is my community. And I think it is in many ways a compass that I follow. And um, at least up to now, every time I follow poetry, it has led me to places and people in the most surprising corners of the world um, that I would not have ever been able to find without poetry. And and so I keep I keep following it. So what inspires you to write a poem when you decide on one? And what does that writing process look like? I always write poetry when I have something that I'm trying to figure out. So it's actually not very romantic. It is in some ways like a brain Rubik's cube for me. And I often think of poem as a verb. So when I have something that I'm struggling with or that I can't quite wrap my brain around, I try to poem my way through it. And sometimes I get to the end of writing a poem and I go, oh, that's <laughs> that's what I was trying to figure out. And sometimes I get to the end of the poem and I still haven't figured it out, but at least I have a new poem out of it. <laughs> it seems like poetry is kind of having its moment today. Does that Does that feel the same to you in terms of the interest in the form? I mean, I'm the wrong person to ask because I think poetry is always having a moment. And I think the moment of poetry is eternal. I think that with each new technology that arrives, there are new opportunities for poetry within that medium. And so it is definitely the case that I would not have the career that I have in a moment before the internet, for example. And it is true that so much of what I have been able to do is a result of people far away from me physically being able to see videos of my poetry online and learn about my work um, before I ever step foot in the country where they are. And so I'm very aware of um, 
what the internet has afforded in terms of more people being introduced to poetry, perhaps on its best days, more people feeling like poetry is available to them. And I also think that, you know, poetry does not need to be viral for it to be vital. (laughs) I think that people always reach for poetry in moments like funerals and weddings and presidential inaugurations and um, protest. And there is something that poetry gives us that we need and reach for, we human beings. And um, when someone says that they don't like poetry or they don't get poetry or poetry isn't for them, often I believe that that is because they have not yet been able to find the poem that makes them feel welcome in the house of poetry, but that there is a poem that will unlock that door for them. And so a lot of my work is trying to find more ways to invite more people into poetry and to try to make poetry feel more available and more accessible. There has been plenty of people who have been invested in keeping poetry uh, exclusionary and locked in an ivory tower, but that's how art goes stale and it needs to be expanded and the definition needs to be pushed and more possibilities need to be found. And so I think um, I'm invested in the uh, expansion and the accessibility. And I get excited when more people get more open to poetry or enthusiastic about poetry or um, curious about poetry. It just, it, it feels really exciting to always Um, fall in love with an art form over and over again, alongside other people falling in love with it for the first time, perhaps. So as you embark on your fellowship this year, where do you hope to be with your project a year from now? Oh, no, I don't know. I don't know how long anything is supposed to take. (laughs) I mean, um, here's what I hope. I hope that I can write a book that is respectful and thorough and extremely well-researched and thoughtful and careful and maybe even poetic. And I hope that it is as compelling to readers as the experience of living it has been. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.